we have many people who are not familiar with museums in general who come to visit our museum. And so we have this responsibility to create a really positive experience that we hope will then lead them to, when they're in other cities, you know, visit other museums as part of their vacations and start to realize the excitement behind the stories of the work. Hello, and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am very excited to be here today with Kathy White and Peter Tush from the Dali Museum. I'm Kathy White. I'm the deputy director of the Dali Museum, and I oversee HR, visitor experience, and several other departments. Those are the, the big ones. And I'm Peter Tush, the Curator of Education at the museum. So I work with our adult programs, I oversee our student programs, our school programs, and I also work in conjunction with exhibitions. For example, scripting, audio guides, and things like that. And you've both been at the Dali for quite some time. In fact, before it moved to its new building, is that right? That's correct for me. I started in 1981. The building was being built. There was no artwork on the wall. And then I came as a volunteer, I think in 1987. So I was working my undergraduate thesis and decided to get into the docent program. There was an opportunity to be hired, started working for Kathy, and I've been there for ever since, you know, shifting different departments, but. So I think people have lots of different ideas about museums and what they are, what they have been, and what they will be. One that I think tends not to come to mind for people is a romantic environment, but you both fell in love there and got married, is that right? That is correct. Peter mentioned starting there, um, he took the docent class, and I did hire him to work in the store, which is what I was running at the time, and we just, you know, we hit it off as a just instant friendship and then romance, which we kept we thought secret for three years. Some of our closest friends knew, but we thought it was a secret. Could one of you describe the Dali in a nutshell for people who may not have visited it? <laughs> you can do that well, Peter. Sure. The Dali Museum is essentially a museum that's dedicated to the collection that was put together by A. Reynolds Morse and his wife, Eleanor Morse, over a four-decade period. And so we have the largest public collection of Salvador Dali's work anywhere outside of his own museum in Spain. And so we start from this idea that we're working with an artist of the 20th century who is identified with dreams and surrealism, and yet has so many connections culturally to different movements, different types of people, areas such as science and pop culture and mathematics that we've been able to build and expand on that. And we're also, I think, perceived by many people as a attraction yeah. as well as a museum. So we also have this exciting opportunity where we have many people who are not familiar with museums in general who come to visit our museum. And so we have this responsibility to create a, a really positive experience that we hope will then lead them to, when they're in other cities, you know, visit other museums as part of their vacations and start to realize the excitement behind the stories of the work. And, you know, one thing that, that ha happens quite often is we get people who are here on vacation. They were told by a family member or a friend, oh, you must go to this site. Um, so they come to the museum. They might be here to see a Devil Rays game or Devil Rays, the Rays <laughs> game, you know, or, or something else or to see the beaches. They'll come. They remember Dolly because he had melting watches. They remember they didn't care for him very much. Or maybe they saw one, you know, what's my line, you know, or, you know, oh, something like that. Oh, they they just remember like these fleeting things about him. And they always come away with this sense of a, a kind of like euphoric moment where they they've just really had an experience. 
they have fully encountered something that's so unexpected. They may not be wanting to go out and become Dolly enthusiasts, but they really feel like it's it's such a rich thing that they just went through that, you know, and that's a pretty special thing. That's a rare thing that you can take somebody and give them an experience they're not expecting. And it's something that they can talk to everybody about, you know, they just have to share it. So what are some of the things you do to enhance that experience? I think the one of the things that we really pride ourselves on and have done for all of our years is our docent training, our docents, which Peter trains. And we give so many tours, six tours a day, I think. Mm -hmm. Those are great. The docents have different personalities. People connect with them. But we also realize at a certain point that as many people took the docent tours, a lot didn't. And we really felt they were missing out on what what there is with Dolly's work. It's it's not the kind of thing you just look at and go, okay. You want to know what you're looking at. So we have audio guides, which we've had since moving into the the new building. That was mm-hmm. our what a big thing for, with the new museum. And that is we have 400 units. We just can't even we can't keep them. Units? You mean the headsets yeah. and the? Mm-hmm. And it provides an opportunity for a wonderful interpretation of our permanent collection, and then each of our special exhibitions. Peter, with the curators, writes a script for. So I think that's huge because they're both free. They're comfortable, easy to do. We have other languages, which is important for us because we're an international museum. So I think that's, that's kind of a hallmark of our museum. You have an incredibly rigorous program for your docents. It's almost like a college course, if I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been um, I've been involved in doing the docent program since I think the end of the 90s. And we've really turned it into something that we have offered at USF St. Pete, you know, several times. And the program is, it's strenuous. It, it's not as long or involved as, say, the Museum of Fine Arts. Ours is about seven months. And it's, you know, the, the one thing that we really can guarantee is that because we have a small collection, 96 oil paintings, and we have one artist, the knowledge that they're able to acquire is rich and vast, but it's not constantly changing. Every three months with really radically new exhibitions, you have to relearn. So we're able to offer something that's really deeply insightful about many of the pieces in our collection, which is really a, a, a great opportunity for us. I mean, most museums don't have that that opportunity to have each piece have its own variety of stories and ways that you can interpret it. And so we have a really diverse group of people who have become our docents. We have about 130 active docents. Some of them are retired. Some are very active professionally. We have multiple language docents. I think we have five docents who speak Russian, uh, four or five who speak Spanish. We have um, a German docent, two French docents. And then we have people who have come from being painters, being sculptors. We have artists from school system. We have people who are professionals in business. And so all those different perspectives, we really try to take advantage of and work that into how they present the collection. You said something that that really struck me, that because it's one artist, you can really dive in deeply and, and offer some important insights into a particular piece of work. We have people that come in that they, they're familiar with the collection. They like the energy of some of the people presenting. They have a, a sense of this is what they want to be a part of. But there is that moment, the challenge of, you know, oh my God, how... I haven't been in school in 20 years. How am I going to start reading all this material and mastering it? And there's often a moment of panic somewhere about halfway through where they feel like this is just going to be too much. And then suddenly you almost see that 
corner turned just about three quarters of the way through the program where there's suddenly that realization that they can go up. They can already start talking. They may not have even finished the program, but they know and have mastered, you know, an entire body of work that really is of interest to our public. And they, you know, it's that that moment of confidence that they suddenly have that they can share these stories and the stories don't go away. We do a lot with teen docents. And it's interesting because when you encounter them after they've finished the program years later, they will remember exactly every detail about the painting that they were trying to master. You know, we've run into some people who are now parents. They had taken the program back in the late 80s, early 90s. They will remember everything about their painting. And that's, I think, incredibly satisfying. We have a great relationship with Paula Kramer, local choreographer and dancer and just imaginer of how dance can be brought into everyday life. She did some projects with us early on when we moved into our new building, but what's interesting is it's morphed into an opportunity for her to work with our junior docents. And so one of the things we learned is that if you have, you know, young students for 35 hours a week, they get a little bit, you know, antsy at certain points. And Paula uses that as a great opportunity to find ways to introduce movement in relation to the types of things that they're working on with the Dolly Collection. I think some of the girls have a much more comfortable, um, which is a terrible thing to say, it's very gendered, but uh, a lot of the younger girls have, have great comfort and ease with the idea of movement in relation to paintings and with the ideas of how that connects with certain like figures that they see in paintings. Paula was trying to find the same thing she could do with the boys, and she started to have this idea about using rubber bands and have them become almost like robots and have them try to use the rubber bands to create geometric movement. And it was so sensational. And all of these young boys just immediately got into it. And it was, you know, it was a revelation to us to see that every student who was in this program was having fun doing these movement-related activities. And so it's become sort of part of our junior docent program. We don't do it with our regular docents. <laughs> junior docents. So we've been talking about the experience of a visitor to the museum who, with either with a headset or a docent or on their own, goes around and experiences the collection. But you offer a slew of other experiences. You had something called Dolly Loves Pie. And we're talking about the number pie, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because we don't, at least I don't know whether he loves pie <laughs> that you eat, but Dolly loves pie. And I was looking at that and, and saying to myself, what is that? But then who thinks of that? How do you oh. get an idea like that? Yeah. Well, the first, the first one is, you know, March 14th, 3.14 is the number of pie, the... Uh, 22 divided by 7, the mathematical irrational number, and Dali was fascinated by mathematics. And one of the reasons for that is that he looked to Leonardo da Vinci as a source of inspiration, and da Vinci immersed himself in mathematics. And so we've been able to actually work into our garden references to his interest in both the number phi, which is the 1.618, and the number pi you know, 3.14. So on March 14th, for about five years now, we try to pause and celebrate the mathematics, I guess, behind some of our collection and the paintings. But the, the bigger question about how do we get ideas, how do these things connect, what's the, the real gift that we have with having Salvador Dali, as opposed to, say, Rene Magritte or Max Ernst or, you know, any of the other really, you know, interesting and fascinating painters of the 20th century, is that Dali was a sort of celebrity gadabout enthusiast for pop culture. And, mm -hmm. you know, he had connections with filmmakers. He had connections with dancers. He had connections with, you know, fashion designers. And all of these just give you, like, almost an infinite number of, of roads that you can travel. You can easily 
justify connecting our collection with you know just the most diverse array of things from we had a uh, Ferran Adria food exhibition that's pretty sensational and it's because Dolly is from the same country and they had the same sort of spirit and there was a sense that Dolly influenced this gentleman uh, Ferran Adria and who would have thought that that would be you know something and it was sensational and didn't you serve ham in yeah. the gal in the gallery <laughs> yes we yes. did <laughs> that was um i'm sure that was our director's idea because no one else would have even thought that you could do that <laughs> and how we did it and it was great it was wonderful it was very special and very memorable and probably something we won't be doing again for a while <laughs> Now we get together as a group when an exhibition is coming and we plan all the aspects of it, including programming and things for the visitor, visual things, interactive elements. So it's fun as a a group to come together and and just think of of the programming that can go along with Mm -hmm. a theme or an artist. Where we are and what we've been doing is that those ideas that might have seemed impossible are not off the table. So I have this vision of you in a room with a whiteboard and everybody sitting around and saying, whatever crazy idea it is, let's put mm-hmm. it on this whiteboard because mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. may fit. Yes. Um, we don't use the board so much as our notes, but yeah, absolutely, that's what we do. We have we all have a sense of who our audience is. We all have a shared sense of some of the variety of ways we can connect, connect with different communities. And the nice thing is we have different interests. So each of us come to the table with some other knowledge that nobody else at the table uh, shared. And so we're able to come together as a team and see how these things might all work together. Is there a story about one of those that you could share with us? Um, think about the uh, the dog, the Frida dog. Uh, <laughs> perfect one. Photos. Yes. So... A person in my department was looking online and saw these photographs of dogs decorated with the, uh, the flowers, like in, like, you know, in referencing Frida Kahlo's appearance. And it was just said, wouldn't it be great to have a dog event? And we all sort of thought about that for a minute because I think actually individually a lot of us have participated in the dog walks, you know, the Saturday dog walks once a year. And there are many, many pet owners at the museum and everybody loves that. But I think we all almost immediately cringed at the idea of, oh my God, how do you have an event at the museum with pets, pet owners? How do you not let them into the galleries because we can't bring in all those animals? Um, How do you feed them? How do you take care of the waste? You know, all these things. And then suddenly it just, you know, Somebody at the table said, well, we've had a, an installation, you know, a small uh, gazebo over at the um, the Saturday morning market uh, on the other side of the museum for a couple months. And why don't we bring a photographer there? And suddenly all these things started to just kind of click. We had um, somebody on our staff who started talking to them, started talking about who is a photographer who works well with animals and pets and it actually came to pass. I mean, none of us thought we were going to do it. Or at least if we did, we were terrified of what that might mean for the museum. And we suddenly realized it doesn't need to be at the museum to still connect with us. And it turned out to be a huge success. I think we had over 100 photos that day. Dogs with the flowers on, mm-hmm. on their heads. And some with, I'm not sure how they yes, did the it. the unibrow. The unibrow. The unibrow. <laughs> it, was, it was great fun, and they all turned out wonderful. And so are yeah. those online if people want to mm-hmm. see them? Yeah, we have the a Flickr account. Yeah, the Dolly Flickr account. Instagram. And, yeah. <laughs> the, another example is this was an idea that came from other exhibits, which was to recreate some aspect of Frida's garden. And that was given to the people who do our garden. They came up with, they looked at the images and they came up with how to construct and build and paint 
and you know put the flowers and buy the flowers for the pyramid, pyramid in our garden yeah. so not individuals who are have been in the past or are typically involved in that side of exhibitions and yet for Frida they were integral and our garden is is really becoming a big part of, of the museum experience and in terms of the Frida exhibit, you also had a workshop launch your own memoirs? That's something I'm really excited about. One of our former staff members was Margot Hammond, who is now still working with us and presenting lectures and doing trainings like that. And for 20 years, she was the book editor with the St. Pete Times. And she has just incredible depth and experience with doing things like memoir writing workshops, building on Frida's ideas and using collage as a kind of jumping off point. And it, the people that took it just really enjoyed it. And it so, seems in some ways so remote from what you normally associate with a museum being able to do, but it just feels like a really just natural, fluid connection with what we are. Well, that was what was striking to me, that it's almost a, a museum, and I mean this in the most positive way, a museum is a community center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's it. Because most people, if you can get them to the garden or to the museum at all, they will hopefully eventually want to go to the third floor, which is the ultimate payoff. But it doesn't matter. They come to the museum. They're having a wonderful experience. That's what matters. Well, also, I think it says something about welcoming, you know, that there's many doors to enter. You can Mm -hmm. enter through your pet parade with flowers. You can, you know, enter through a docent program or a young docent program. But but that leads us to one of the really exciting things that we have going now, which is our, it's called Dreams of Dolly, and it is virtual reality. It's in our gallery now permanently. It was brought in for which one? Oh, for um, the Disney exhibition. Disney. Yeah. You go into a a painting by Dolly. It's populated with things that are Dallinian that are not in the painting, some of them. It's just, it's really wonderful. So every day we have lines of people. We have to have management of the lines because there's so many people that want to do it who come in and put the Oculus on their head and step into this world. So these are 3D virtual reality glasses. With headphones. Mm-hmm. So it's a true immersion. And headphones, and you put those glasses mm-hmm. on. So there's a, there is a landscape of the, the painting, it's archaeological yeah. reminiscence, and you'll, you move your head, it's 100% free movement, you can look wherever you want, you're not directed. Movement's provided by white balls. A ball, yeah. So there'll be a ball in the distance, and if you look at it for a period of two seconds, three seconds you move to that ball. So you will physically just jump. So it's very much like game playing. And then you'll notice maybe two potential balls and you can make a choice and it will lead you to another spot. And you're seeing images that are, for example, that the painting is these two monolithic figures. They're the Angelus couple from famous painting, but they're done like old uh, ruins. So you go inside the ruins and the, the hologram of Alice Cooper and, and that's in there. And there's the space elephants are in the landscape that you wouldn't see, but you see them in the distance and then you can look up at them and you can look around. It's So you're inside the landscape inside. of that painting mm-hmm. as if you were on another planet, yep. mm-hmm. kind of as an explorer. Discovering what's in there. That, that, you can miss things yep. uh, if you don't look around There's enough. a girl who's skipping rope in one area that if you go to one of the other white balls, you might never get to her. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can go up at the top of the tower. You can come back down to the bottom. Both towers, I think, are mm-hmm. accessible. There's a lobster telephone in one of them. There's a the Alice Cooper hologram in the other. You hear sounds like the lobster telephone ringing. It's, it's really fun. It really amplifies the experience.
So another thing I saw was a project with Legos. Absolutely. We hit, we have a, a colleague named Nathan, and Nathan has been developing something called Innovation Labs. And it's really interesting. It's something that he and our director have been collaborating on. And the idea is that Dolly provides sort of a, a matrix or a an idea for how, how creativity can be tapped into, how you can find new ways of exploring the same types of problems. And what they've done is they try to create a series of different lessons that they can share with others based on Dolly's approaches to certain problems. And they've started to offer this to businesses. And Legos have become a very interesting tool to use with people who would, would try to be doing something like this, training their management team for new ways of starting to think about problems. Legos are a way to take an idea, challenge people. It's very creative, it's very quick, it's very tactile, and it's something they never ever do. And Nathan has been able to use this in a very you know profound way to just kind of free up the expectations and to lead them to new discoveries about ways to approach these types of problems. And we have a huge number of Legos that we own. <laughs> he was able to purchase, I don't know whose collection it was, but it was just this vast series of, I don't know, about a room's worth of Legos that he's been able to use for these different different training sessions. You walk into the Dali Museum, you're walking into a time out of time, space out of space. You sort of, I think, are willing maybe a little bit to give up on, you know, the what's mm -hmm. normal and what's sure. expected and to feel a little free. I think the architecture of the building does that. Maybe you let down some skepticism sure. a little bit. You're kind of in a safe place for being yeah. unconventional or, or a way that you wouldn't be in a business environment. And, and it also mm -hmm. sounds like that's a bit contagious for your you and your teams in terms yeah. of it challenges you to think more flexibly Hmm. Mm -hmm. I hate to use the words think outside the box because uh, the architect explained to me that the dolly is a box. The museum is a box. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a broken box. It's a box that has, he said, it's a box that's been somehow cracked open so that all the public space has bright light. You know, the glass is the, the seams that start to show. Oh, sure. But it's true. It is true. It is a, a very, very rational box, but it has the break in it, the crack. And But the rash that... Isn't that a great description in a certain way of Dolly's work? There's a great statement saying by Dolly that we have plastered all over. The only difference between myself and a madman is that I'm not mad. And I think that's kind of says it in a nutshell. It's like it's the appearance of, of madness, but not really. Yeah, there's a so, very controlling aspect very to it. Controlling. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Knowing how much madness and mm -hmm. where the madness should be and at what point it needs structure right. to be communicatable to other people. 15 to 20 years, we've had an ongoing film series called the Dolly and Beyond film series. And almost monthly, we're able to completely reimagine a group of films that would make sense in relation to the collections. We've done Louis Bunuel film festivals. We've done everything from uh, very imaginative, almost Tim Burton type of films. We've done children's films that are unusual. We've done Spanish culture films. So every Saturday at one o'clock, we have a free film. Wow. You know, and so we really try to keep them interesting, unusual, and always complimentary who we are. One of our most successful programs is our Coffee with a Curator, and it's a discussion on a first Wednesday morning of every month. And we've had staff, we've had local professors, we've had art historians, and so we've been able to really focus on either our temporary exhibition or the permanent collection in very unique ways. You know, we've had everything from Dolly in relation to his wife Gala, to talks about Dolly in relation to surrealism, Catholicism in relation to Dolly. You know, it's like almost an infinite number of topics. But then we've also done things like Rhonda 
Wanda Nelson, community poet who worked with a group called the Irritable Tribe of Poets, which was a uh, band to do a concert that was directly about Frida Kahlo. She had written a book of, of poems about Frida, and that was just a sensational evening. You know, people loved it. Uh, the plays. Uh, yes, we've had some great plays. Collaboration with Freefall yeah. and Roxanne. Roxanne Faye. Faye. Uh, she's uh, done one-woman performances. So we've tried to have opportunities to encourage new plays to be written, but we've also worked with Bob Devin Jones and also Edgar College. Yeah. We've had some plays that were read that related to the topics or themes of our shows to do readings that would seem to resonate with with some of the programs we've got going. So what I'm hearing here also is an outreach to local artists, to poets and playwrights and performers, to engage with you to further expand what the museum is doing. I think that's one of the most important things we can do as a museum is we recognize that there's great talent here in the Bay Area people that we love, people that we work with, people we seek out to enjoy. And when there's an opportunity for a collaboration, it's the first thing we think of. When we developed the museum, uh, one of the ways that we grew in our old location, in our old years, was because we were a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. We embraced that fully. Uh, the visitor was from afar, not from St. Petersburg. But that's not really sustainable model. You really have to engage everybody and the people that are in our, our community are essential. So really that was a, a not only a conscious shift, but it was enabled by our new building with mm -hmm. the all of the things that are there now, the garden, the cafe, all the things that we you know didn't have the advantage sure. of at the old uh, And when we first opened, in order to, you know, there was a, a large amount of money that needed to be raised. And both the city and the county, when we were being built, each matched 2.5 million. It was just this incredible outpouring of, of support and it was a very important gift. And that actually led partially to Carol Mickett's conversations that were happening monthly. We realized that, you know, we, we are part of this community. We owe a debt to the community. We want to celebrate this community. And it's not just about Dolly's art. It's about so much more than that. And, you know, Carol had put together something that was really an intriguing series of conversations that happened at the museum but really connected with really who we think of ourselves as being, which is we are a community, you know, resource. We are not always just mm -hmm. melting watches and surreal dreams. You know, from what I understand, people do come to St. Petersburg, Pinellas County, because the Dali is here. Yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. We're happy to say mm -hmm. that we have become a very, an attractor. In my own experience, I had some friends come and they were going to go to the Dali, you know, for a couple hours and then do some other things. And I think they, the only thing they did was go to the Dali and then come out and eat at one of the nice restaurants for like brunch and then go back to the Dali mm. and then come out and have dinner. And That's they great. literally just <laughs> couldn't, <laughs> you know, couldn't pull themselves away. And, you know, they. they That's oh, wonderful. That is. Uh, one of the challenges we've actually had is that in our former, former building, people would visit maybe. 90 minutes. That was a typical visit. And then they'd be gone. In our current building, I think it's closer to it's, three and a half hours. They're staying a long time. And so suddenly even like that impacts parking. It impacts what we're able to do with our physical spaces because we're suddenly two to three to four times as many people as we really mm -hmm. were, were accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And so it's all become uh, great, but it's also this challenge, you mm -hmm. know, it's like, how do you fit so many people into this small space? So what are they doing for three and a half hours? They take a tour. A lot of them will do both, the docent tour, which is usually about an hour. Mm -hmm. If you take that, if you listen to the audio tour, 
It's another half hour. A half an hour. Plus the temporary show will be a half hour if you wanted to go through all of the stops and both of those. I think you could spend easily a half an hour in our store. They're stopping for a coffee or a lunch or, or whatever, some wine in our in our cafe, and they go out to the garden. So there's there's enough to do to, to stay for hours. You also have a, a show every year that is a student surrealist mm-hmm. exhibit. That's that's something that I'm incredibly proud that we do. And essentially it's now almost year round because we do a show for Pinellas and then a show with Hillsborough and those last about a season. So that's winter, spring. In the summer now we have a state show. And in the fall we're planning to have the best of those three shows put together as its own show. This goes back probably to about 1984, 1985, shortly after the museum opened, Pinellas County approached the museum to say, wouldn't it be great to have a student show? And at that point in the old building, I don't think that they could quite conceive of how to do that. And I think it happened at Tyrone Mall. Mm. And it was it was the beginning of it, laid the seeds for this exhibition. And they had panels through Tyrone Mall of students doing work inspired by or connected to the, the the Dolly collection. Well, how does that happen? How does a student do work inspired by or connected Well, there's, to? there's certain techniques that we focus on. We talk about things like juxtaposition, you know, finding ways to put things together that don't seem to normally go together. We talk about Dolly's interest in, uh, in dreams and how dreamscapes Irrational ways of presenting something that's familiar is also a big part of the world that he he was a a part of. And then there's also other ways to approach it with different techniques, say random patterns or ink blots, and then trying to develop those into a recognizable form. And that comes right out of the language of surrealism. And so what we wind up doing is we provide a show that's almost the the opposite of Scholastic. Scholastic is the national show that so many great artists have been a part of when they were students. And we have a great program here in Pinellas County where that's done. But that show is specifically about how good you are you at portraiture? How good are you at landscape? It really is a very rational kind of criteria. You have to be a great artist and you have to have great technique. Our show provides sort of the slippage there, you know, where we encourage people to use their creativity and imagination first, and then their technique will bring that forward. But the vision is really what we're interested in. We want something that does not look like a traditional self-portrait. We want something that does not look like a traditional landscape. We often have students that are not part of arts programs, but are taking art classes that just have something that they do that's really unique and that becomes perfect for our show. So what happens with a student and and or their family, they come to see their work at the Dolly. Yeah. Besides the fact that you can put that your work was shown at the Dolly, which, you know, is huge, but. Well, the big event is the reception. So we have um, 100 pieces in the show. We'll have sometimes up to 500 people come to that reception. And nine out of 10 family members have never been to the Dolly before. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a sort of sensational opportunity to introduce an entirely unfamiliar group of people, many of whom have little interest in art, to this really great experience where they are so proud for their students, their children. They get to go upstairs for free, see the collection, make some connections. Usually the students have been here several times and they're the ones who get to you know, talk about it with, to their parents. They get to be docents. Yes, mm-hmm. it's really exciting. It's one of the best things we do. And some of the work is, is really incredibly good. It is, and, yeah. and not just their parents or friends, but our visitors go in there yeah. into the room because you're it's attractive. There's a, there's a lot of art in the, on the wall. And you see them spending as much time as they do upstairs because the, the work is really fun and yeah. in, intricate and creative and 
funny. The art teachers in our county and in Hillsborough are just incredible. Yeah, you can see over and over again, certain schools that have great teachers, they will have great students. The work is just wonderful to spend time with. Well, it just sounds like such a uh, an energetic museum, you know, a museum that has really passed through the walls. So I want to end this with a trick question for both of you. What would you do next if there were no barriers at all? What would you do if you could? I would love to see a show focused on the Rube Goldberg device, mm. an entire yes. exhibition. Oh, about yes. I know that that, you know, the more I think about it, it's like that requires a lot of money, time and travel. And then the other show that I think has to happen, I just don't know how we would approach it, but I'm fascinated by the idea of Dolly's obsession with spirals. And for him, it's very specific. It's the golden spiral, the logarithmic spiral. But I think just a show focused on our obsession with pattern making related to spirals could be so much fun, mm. so strange and so interesting. I can't, I can't leave in this moment the Rube Goldberg <laughs> that would be, would that be incredible. Oh, that would I be so much fun. I see this happening at some point. It just uh, seems like it has to. It's, you know? it's true. You had the idea years ago. You started introducing the idea of Disney and Dolly in educational mm -hmm. talks, etc. Mm -hmm. And that eventually led to an exhibition and an exhibition that Peter was a co-curator on. Right. So I see this as a future oh, yeah. exhibition. Oh, yeah. so much fun. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to hold my breath, but I will keep my fingers crossed. Because sometimes once ideas get out, they just take on a life of their own. That's true. So thank, thank you very, very much for this lovely conversation. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you. It's our pleasure and thank you for inviting us. Oh, you're quite welcome. So we've been talking to Kathy White and Peter Tush, and they're both from the Dali Museum. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.